I bought this book by Michio Kushi called The Macrobiotic Way and started buying all this macrobiotic food from like the one health food store in the village called Sunrise, which had wilted lettuce and kale in the front and some brown rice and a few packages of tofu. And in the middle of Michio Kushi's book, he had these eight practices or eight exercises that he said would open your meridians and make you healthier. And little did I know they were really yoga postures. When I finally found a yoga class in New York, there are only a few schools, and I went to it the first day we did the obvious things, sun salutations, and stood on our head and shoulder stand and all that. And I thought to myself, you know, what does standing on my head have to do with enlightenment? Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Sheetal Shah talks with Ashtanga yoga teacher Eddie Stern about his latest book, One Simple Thing, how he opened the only Ganesh temple in downtown Manhattan, and why he doesn't like to be called a yoga guru. Hope you enjoy it. Ashtanga yoga world, I think everybody knows who Eddie Stern is, but I would venture to say that many of our listeners are not likely from the Ashtanga world and are probably not super familiar with you. So before we get into too many details, I'd love to just talk a little bit about your journey into yoga um, and kind of get to the point where you were actually running a Ganesh temple here in Manhattan. My first introduction to yoga was when I was about 15 or so. And I was at a summer camp. I might have even been you know, 14 or 15. I can't remember which. It was basically a Shivananda style yoga practice. It was being done. And the main thing I remember about it, we had like two weeks of yoga that when I would do Shavasana at the end of every practice, I would go into this void of like total non-existent emptiness. And, um, and I really liked it because it was so peaceful. Uh, I wanted to carry on doing yoga when I went back home after camp, but I was scared to because I thought that the teacher knew a special trick from, for bringing us out from the void. And what if I went home and I did this, this Shavasana at home and I went into the void and my parents came into my room and saw me lying there, but they didn't know how to bring me out from the void and I would be stuck there forever. So I had this like actual visceral fear of, of like non-existence occurring because I wouldn't know how to get back from this state. And uh, I remember so vividly like imagining it in my mind, like what would I look like lying on the floor and what would it look like if my parents found me and I didn't exist in my body. I wasn't dead. So um, I didn't do it again uh, for a couple of years. And then I was uh, 18 or 19. I was working in a record store after I graduated from high school. And this was in Greenwich Village where I grew up in New York. There was a guy working in the record store who had done yoga before and he was living a very healthy lifestyle. And I was living a very unhealthy lifestyle, mainly Big Macs and pizza and falafel and cappuccino and Coke. Um, and that was my diet and two packs of cigarettes a day. And it was like super not healthy, obviously. And I was not feeling good and I wanted to feel good. So he was telling me about a vegetarian diet. I said, this is for me. I became a vegetarian. This is before I started doing any yoga with him. And I didn't know what to eat on a vegetarian diet. So for the first month, I mainly ate iceberg lettuce, apples, and rice cakes. <laughs> I bought this book by Michio Kushi called The Macrobiotic Way and started buying all this macrobiotic food from like the one health food store in the village called Sunrise, which had wilted lettuce and kale in the front and some brown rice and a few packages of tofu. But I found everything I needed there. And in the middle of Michio Kushi's book, he had these eight practices or eight exercises that he said would open your meridians and make you healthier. And little did I know they were really yoga postures. So that's where I first started doing something physical. Uh, aside from like skateboarding, which I did a lot of, uh, that was an interior practice. So really my first practice of asanas was because of a vegetarian diet. And I learned it through the Michio Kushi book. And then later on, my friend Ted um, gave me books on yoga sutras and on kundalini. And for me, mainly because I didn't know that these postures in the cookbook were yoga, 
I thought that yoga, of yoga as mainly a practice of meditation, and it was just about samadhi, and it was only about raising your kundalini. And that was accomplished through the blessings of a guru, through Shaktipat, and through meditation. Uh, and that was it for me. So when I finally found a yoga class in New York, there were only a few schools, and I went to it the first day we did the obvious thing, sun salutations, and stood on our head and shoulder stand and all that. And I thought to myself, this has absolutely nothing to do with yoga. Where is the Shakti pod? You know, what does standing on my head have to do with enlightenment? And it was baffling for me. And, and at this time, I was like 19. And um, so, but then I started enjoying doing something positive with my body, and I got more and more into it. And um, then when I was 20, I realized uh, very deeply that all I wanted to do was yoga and that that was going to be the trajectory um, for me for the time being. Um, and uh, then I went to India to take the Shivananda teacher training course um, right after I turned 21, the end of that year. So um, that was really my entry point into yoga. Um, I don't know why or how it grabbed me so quickly, and but I'm glad that it did. Um, I traveled around India quite a bit for the for 1988, 89, 1990, 91. I met Patabi Joyce in Mysore, and uh, he was a very um, uh, interesting and demanding yoga teacher of the sorts I hadn't met before. And although he didn't strike me as being a yogi so much himself the yoga he was teaching was the best yoga that I had experienced so far. And after about a year or two of not being sure whether or not I wanted to do his thing, um, finally in 1993 or so, I thought, you know, I'm going to try to stick with this and see what I can learn from him. And so 1993, I really dedicated myself, maybe end of 1992, 93, I dedicated myself to learning his practice, which he called Ashtanga Yoga. And uh, then I studied with him for 18 years until he passed away. Um, so that's kind of my yoga journey. The opening of the Ganesh Temple was that um, because very early on, I thought that yoga meant enlightenment and samadhi and meditation, I also had learned a little bit about chanting and that Sanskrit was an important language to learn. So in 1989, I started learning Sanskrit and I was uh, enraptured by the sound of chanting and all of the mantras I was hearing in the temples in India. So that became sort of a, even a more important part of my practice than doing asanas or anything like that. The ritual and chanting was where I felt the yoga came to life for me more than anything else. We had a tiny little temple in our first school on Broadway from 1995 to 2000. And when we lost that space, because Crate and Barrel took over the building, we uh, and moved down to Broom Street, I asked Patabi Joyce if we could install a temple there. And he said, yes, you can. Um, you can have the deities carved here in Mysore because there were some good Shilpa Shastris there. And he recommended that we install a Ganesha. I, I had originally been thinking Hanuman because I was more of a Hanuman Pakta. So we did both. We did Anjaneya and also a Ganesha. And then he came and did the Pratishta about a year later after the deities were carved and everything was set and we were ready to do it. And then for the 15 years more that we were there, uh, we ran this Ganesha temple and it was uh, the best thing we ever did, I think. And when, the, when we couldn't buy that space because the building got sold, I was fine closing the yoga school. That wasn't a big deal. But when we had to undo the Pratishta and transfer the the Shakti from the deity onto the um, the temporary deity. Uh, a priest came from Australia, who's originally from Chennai, who did the Pratishta with us, and our local priest was there, Prakash Bhatt, and another priest as well. And when we went into the sanctum to um, do the, the, the transfer of the Shakti, we were all bawling. We were all in tears. It was horrible. I, I mean, I remember the closing of, of the school and the temple, and I think all of us, those of us who were students and those who just came to the temple just to, to pray, uh, were absolutely heartbroken. And I still remember when I found you, which was through HAF's Take Back Yoga campaign, and 
we were invited to speak at a panel in Princeton and I had no way of, of getting there. And we were on an email thread and you offered me a ride. And I said, okay, sure. And I showed up at the Broom Street Temple and I had no idea there was this fantastic Ganesh temple right in the middle of downtown Manhattan. And today, more so than the yoga, I miss having the temple around. You had once mentioned to me that, and you just mentioned it earlier, that Guruji was very strict. Uh, he was very strict about asana, but he was actually even more strict about chanting. And I believe you learned a lot of your chanting from Guruji, from Patabi Joyce. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Um, the I actually kind of hounded him to teach me Sanskrit, and he kept saying no. Uh, he said, it, it takes too long and it's too complicated and the pronunciation is very difficult. And I said, oh, no, I understand. And he tried to find me a teacher local in Mysore, but he wasn't really having much luck doing so. So what I did was I would listen to the things that he would chant. And every once in a while, I would recognize something because I was, you know, I was reading a lot of the Upanishads and all of the yoga texts and things like that. I would read something and I'd recognize, oh, I heard him chanting that. So I'd go down to the Mysore market, uh, the KR market, where they had all the cassette shops. And I'd find a cassette of the Upanishad that he'd been chanting. And then I would listen to that. Upanishad, and then I would memorize it by chanting back and forth with the Upanishad. I would just play the cassette for like one verse and press pause and repeat it back to the cassette player. And I did it like it was, you know, I was being instructed. So I, I had a cassette guru. <laughs> and, and that way I learned like the entire Taitiri Upanishad and eight chapters of the Gita, all these things by heart. And so then when he would start chanting things, I would start chanting along with him. And then finally one day he said, okay, okay, uh, I'll teach you. Uh, actually what happened was first he said, um, he said, here, you memorize this one thing. And it was the Aditya Hridaya. So this was kind of a funny story. He got, we had a small lecture. There were about 20 or 15 or 20 students in Mysore at the time. One day he gave a lecture about the Aditya Hridaya, and he said, you get the same benefit from chanting this as you do from Surya Namaskar. And it was a half hour lecture and no one understood a word of it. And the next week we all got together again and he gave the same exact lecture. And I said, do you know where I can find this? And he said, maybe you can find it at the Ramakrishna mission. So I went to the Ramakrishna mission and they didn't have it. Um, I went to another, the other two bookstores in Mysore, they didn't have it. Uh, and they didn't seem to know what it was, which was odd because it's a very well-known prayer from the Ramayana. And it's when Rama is facing Ravana on the battlefield and he's losing. And he prays to um, Augustia to help him. And Augustia teaches him this Aditya Hridaya. Um, so then I went up to Bangalore to go to the Multilal Banarsi Das and asked them if they had it. They didn't have it. I went to the Ramakrishna mission there. They didn't have it. But while I was there, there was a guy uh, who was in the bookshop who said, oh, um, I, we have it near our temple. Come with me and we'll give it to you. So I went with him to wherever he lived in Bangalore. It was like miles and miles away. He got his brother out of the house, who was one of the priests in the temple. His brother said, yes, I, I have a text of it, but it's only in Canada. And so, and I don't have any translation of it. Maybe I can translate it for you. I said, well, that would be great, but I'm heading back to Mysore today. So I went back to Mysore. A couple of days later, I went back to the Ramakrishna mission in, um, in Mysore. And I said, you know, are you sure you don't know this Aditya Hridaya? And the Swami who was behind the counter said, oh, yes, I have it right here. <laughs> So I mem it's 31 verses. I memorized a verse a day. And at the end of 31 days, I, I went to Batabi Joyce and I said, so I memorized the Aditya Hridaya. And he said, you memorized what? And I said, I memorized Aditya Hridaya. Mm -hmm. Memorized what? And then Sharat came over and said, oh, uh, Appa, he memorized Aditya Hridaya. And Tabi just said, oh, Aditya Hridaya, yes, you come today at 12 and you show me. So I went there at 12 and um, he was sitting on the floor ironing his wife's saris and he said, go ahead. And I chanted the first verse and he said, no, 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 all wrong. And he chanted the rest of it and said, okay, tomorrow you come after class and I'll teach you. And so after that, um, 
uh, Shirat and I went uh, almost every day to study chanting with him, to learn chanting with him for several months um, until he turned, I think it was his 80th birthday at that time. And then a lot of students came, old students came and they interrupted our chanting classes. But what would happen was he, you know, if you chanted one syllable wrong, he would really yell at you. It was like, it was, you know, it was serious business. Uh, you know, we had to wear a dhoti, no shirt, no book, um, only listening, one word wrong, you got yelled at. And so uh, in the beginning, actually, Sharat was not happy with me because already we had to bear the, the brunt of, you know, the yoga classes, which were very strict. But then with this on top of it, it was like, oh, God, here's another torture session. And I don't <laughs> after a while, it was really good because um, our pronunciation improved. And it was like you really had to listen closely and be, a, be right on point. You could slough off in the yoga class. You couldn't slough off in the chanting class. So one of the things that we've we've talked about over the years is the importance of lineage, the guru-shishya relationship, and the fact that so many people have taken on this term guru. Uh, but it's something that you yourself have actively not taken on. Um, you always refer to yourself as a yoga teacher, never a guru. Could you talk a little bit about why you never wanted that term? Well, I, you know, I think that the word guru and the the categorization of of being one is very much a Hindu cultural thing. Um, This is not an American cultural thing. We have teachers and instructors here. And uh, in India, you call them gurus and acharyas and different levels of gurus and different types of gurus. There are Indian people who um, say that you know, who call me guru, and I understand why they do. But over here in America, I I don't like that because um, it's just the the word has become so misunderstood and so loaded that I don't want to be identified as that kind of a person. Um, And and I don't think of myself as one. Um, Primarily, I am a, a really avid student. And I love studying and I love learning and there's no end to learning. And I seek out knowledge actively wherever I can. And I also happen to be a teacher, but I happen to be a teacher because maybe I've learned stuff because I'm mainly a student. And I like teaching because I like interacting with people. I think that in America, it's better for us to use the model of having spiritual friends and rather than adopting a term like a guru where there might be some inherent ideas of a power imbalance that can occur between the student and the teacher. We already have enough of those problems anyway. And um, and those are some of my thoughts on it. So I, I do like this idea of, of spiritual friends better. And, you know, you can have a friend who's learned a little bit more about one particular topic and can guide you, but you can also guide them with certain things as well. So this feeling that we can learn something from everyone and to not think that because you know one thing well, you know everything well, uh, are very important things, especially when it comes to um, abuses of power and position um, and authority. We have a lot of those problems in in the West. I think there's, there's probably, you know, a very... Um, uh, there's a different kind of agreement uh, that you um, you know that you participate in between a guru and a disciple, between a guru and a shisha, uh, and that's not the kind of contract that um, I am comfortable engaging in because it's really not part of my cultural heritage and it's also not part of my training, like. We, with Patabi Joyce, we were very free. We would just go there and study with him, and then it was up to us to practice. But I wasn't in Gurukul, and there were a lot of things that he didn't, um, you know, take responsibility for us for as well. He was like, I'm a yoga teacher, and you come to my house and you practice, you go home, you're on your own for your life, and you deal with it. So, um, you know, my training wasn't within 
what you might find in the Hare Krishna organization, where there is a very um, uh, strict kind of guru shishya relationship, or in other situations where it's a very guru centric type of, type of relationship. That wasn't my training with him. He was my yoga teacher, and his name was Guruji. But let's talk a little bit about the importance of that guru shishya relationship in yoga. I mean, and and in Hinduism in general. Back in the day yoga wasn't necessarily taught the way it is now to the mainstream. One teacher, multiple students, students picking, you know, teacher X or teacher Y. I think Ashtanga yoga still functions a little bit more like old school yoga, where you do tend to traditionally practice with the same teacher over and over. So you are able to build a relationship, a student teacher relationship that may not be equivalent to the traditional guru shishya relationship, but it's, it's still there. You know, you know, certain things about my practice that if I went to another teacher, they wouldn't know. How do you see the shift happening here where that relationship is not necessarily, um, I would say it's not necessarily important anymore in the wider yoga world, particularly here in the West? I mean, could that be contributing to some of the issues that we're seeing um, within the yoga world, be it the commercialization of yoga, or even be it some of these Me Too movement problems that are taking place? Well, one thing I'm thinking of that, you know, in regard to how you're framing the question is that even though I might say that I hesitate to think of myself in the, with the term guru, uh, which is true, but the intent behind the way that I'm teaching and the way that I was trained to do yoga still very much is soaked with that intention or with that flavor. And I feel that Patabi Joyce and a lot of the people from that generation were, you know, despite all this modern yoga stuff, they were very, very much steeped in the old ways and the, the ways of of the, of the ancient Hindu traditions. And um, so that was definitely imparted to me. That was the thing, or one of the characterizations of why I liked practicing with him so much that uh, I felt the richness of something ancient. I felt the richness of something that was uh, non-verbalized. And, and I don't want to say like use words like transmission or whatever like that, because I don't want to make it sound anything more mysterious or mystical other than the deep attention that a single person pays to you when you go to them to seek instruction. So that really totally informed the way that both Jocelyn and I learned yoga and many other people back then as well. So I hope that we can carry the depth of that care forward as we teach. So whatever you call it, maybe doesn't matter so much, but what we don't want to lose is the integrity of attention that we pay to the students and the integrity of uh, attention that we continue to pay to our own practices so that we keep alive that, you know, that spark that we learned while we were in India for so many years and we, and we still go to India every year to, because that fuels us for somehow India is really, you know, in many ways, um, for us, it continues to be, uh, uh, important, magical, uh, and deep, rich country and culture that always nourishes our spiritual practices. Like every time we go. So that's a really important part of, um, of, of what we do is maintaining that connection. Um, so a lot of that is absent from the Western, especially the American yoga scenes. It's not as much in Europe because I'm in Europe quite a bit and I see the differences between how yoga is approached in say in France or, um, in Russia you know, in different countries like that, where there's, there's a different sensitivity to, to knowing that it's a spiritual practice. 
and they they might be very good in some ways, especially in Russia uh, at doing the asanas. But they're, the flavor of this as a spiritual practice is very much present. And it's not quite as present, I feel. In America, I travel around America a little bit also, and there's a very different flavor to the way that, that people are doing yoga here. And I think that's because it's been commodified and it's being turned into a massive consumer operation. A lot of money is being made off of yoga. Um, and, and certain parts of the practices are being turned into commodities in ways that I don't think that they should be. So in that, in, in the guise of 200-hour teacher trainings and organizations, uh, say like the Yoga Alliance, which really has turned into an organization that doesn't do too much more than um, clock hours for people and then charge them for that, uh, that allows for the market, quote unquote, the market to be flooded with um, you know, unprepared and poorly trained teachers who observe what else is happening in the marketplace and imitate that. Now, so the reason I say that, and I want to draw a distinction, because when I went to India in 1988, I took a one-month-long teacher training program. That's basically 200 hours. We didn't call it 200 hours then. But I came back to New York with basically a 200-hour training under my belt, and I knew absolutely nothing. <laughs> now, this was separate from your training with, with Patabi Joyce, correct? Three years before I even, even met him. Okay. Okay, so it started off with teaching Shivananda Yoga, and I was teaching at Jiva Mukti, which back then what was Shivananda Yoga. So, and I was teaching at the Shivananda Center on 24th Street, and I was teaching at the Yoga Ranch, and I was teaching at Jiva Mukti, and I knew absolutely nothing, and except for the 12 basic postures and the, um, and the script. Now, the thing is, is the example that I was following was a very different example than the consumer marketplace-driven model that we have now because we were not paid for teaching yoga. Teaching yoga was only seva. That's what you were able to do after you got your teaching training certificate. You were able to teach yoga as service, and that's all we did. So for the first three years that I taught, I never received a penny for teaching. And in fact, to get paid for teaching, I would have felt like really, really dirty. In fact, the first time I got paid for teaching, I felt so corrupt that I just, I didn't even know what to do. I was like, this is horrible. And um, of course, now I'm very happy that I'm able to make a teaching, uh, make a living teaching yoga and send my daughter to school and pay our rent and all those things. That's a, it's a wonderful blessing. But, and so everything has shifted. But back at that time, you didn't get paid for teaching. You did it as service. So even though I knew very little, I had a nice model to follow, which was do this for love. Do this to share the knowledge. And that's all. And this will make people feel better and give them some direction that they can then follow in their own lives. And you participate in a community of people who feel that they are doing service. And that is, as Swami Shivananda said, the highest yoga. And, you know, not to be like wholly super cynical and critical about it, but these are just some general observations of what I observe. Now, a lot of people go to 200-hour teacher trainings because they just want to learn more about yoga, more than they learn in their regular 90-minute class. And so many people go take those trainings thinking, I want to learn a lot more. I want to um, enrich my practice, but I don't want to teach. So it's not that they're totally bad. It's just that we have a new and skewered model, which um, serves the marketplace in, in a variety of ways. And one of those ways is in a consumer-driven, um, not-so-spiritual way. But just to play devil's advocate here for a second, hasn't... <laughs> hasn't that allowed more people to experience yoga? If it had stayed in this traditional model, or even if you stuck with the traditional Ashtanga model, for example, there's only so many students you can develop that personal relationship with, or, or maybe I'm incorrect in that. But uh, if you're sticking with that small group mentality or one teacher, one student, I, it wouldn't have 
become what it is today, good or bad. Well, even with the Shivananda classes, it wasn't one teacher, one student. Those were group classes. And uh, that was my first entryway into yoga. So the Ashtanga yoga model was a different model for me. And um, Patabi Joyce was also doing bigger lead classes as well when he came to the West. So it, it existed. Anytime any industry grows, there will be growing pains. We should expect that. Um, and we should also expect that as there are growing pains and there is a, uh, in, in the tendency for the mission or integrity of the business model starts to get diffused, that there are checks and balances in place to make sure that things stay going in the, in the right direction. So how do you bring something back on track, which is getting diffused? How do you um, maintain the, the vision of the project? when everything starts to spread in a thousand directions. And so companies will usually have these things uh, in place or they should have them in place so they can make sure that they stay on track, that they stay focused. You know, yoga as an unregulated industry, and I'm not saying it should be regulated, but as an unregulated regulated industry in America has definitely gone in a wide variety of ways and much of it is unpalatable to many people, not just me. Um, but in India, all of the different places where you would go for yoga were already existing as independent industri independent industries or independent, um, not industries, but they were independent schools of thought, independent schools of practice. And the thing that was their check and checks and balance was the lineage that they were following. So, of course, there are problems all over the world. I'm not trying to idealize it, but just to draw a distinction between, and to come back to what you're asking about lineage, to draw a distinction between America and India in regards to the spreading of knowledge, that the system of the guru-shisha relationship or the system of parampara or of lineage, because we don't have it here, we have lost one of the innate systems of checks and balances, which should keep us focused and on target and remember what yoga is really for. Uh, we don't have that. So things fall apart. People can do whatever they want with it and they can feel validated for whatever reasons they come up with. Wonder, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yoga is not a good thing. Yoga, I'm very happy millions of people are doing yoga. This is definitely a positive thing, but it's also good to be a little bit critical of the own industries that you work within because that's how we improve ourselves. That's how we make greater gains and we accomplish things by being self-critical. And we need to have more of that because there's too much hedonism in the yoga world right now. Well, one of the things you had told me about lineage, probably in one of your lectures, uh, is one of the reasons that lineage is important was that we can kind of view it almost as a larger data set in that it's a practice has been done for years and years and years. And so you kind of have an understanding of how it's going to affect you versus something that has just sprung up, you know, in the past six months. Yeah, exactly. Uh, something has been tested for several generations, perhaps, before it is accepted and released onto the public. There, there are some fertile testing grounds and we can see, yeah, this, this thing works because we've been testing it for a hundred years. Therefore, it's a reliable source of knowledge. Um, not here's a fad and we just made it up yesterday, but it seems really fun. We don't know what effect it's going to have on you, um, but go for it anyway, because people are going to pay 30 bucks for this class. Well, that kind of brings me to my next point of, of some of the modern day yoga and um, Mark Singleton. And, you know, his premise that modern day yoga originated from bodybuilding and Swedish gymnastics. So, you know, let's talk about why that's wrong. Uh, and I actually want to start it off with just reading out part of the email that you had sent on your listserv on this topic a while ago. You had written that Quote, I would say there's no reason to presume that a yogi and a gymnast cannot discover the same bodily positions at any given point in time. What they do with those positions is determined by their intent. End quote. So in this particular um, definition, it sounds like you're almost defining yoga by the practitioner's intent. Very much so. 
you know, in Hatha Yoga Pradipika, one of the definitions for Hatha, aside from strong or forceful and sun and moon, is determination and the effort of your determination. And the effort of your determination is really an intention. And when you look into Patanjali and we have the actions in yoga or the Kriya Yoga spoken about in the beginning of chapter two, Tapaswadhyaya and Ishwara Pranidhana, these are uh, classifications of a variety of different things that you can do that fall under those headings. And those are really the intentions that you have. So tapas, these are physical things. So these are the intentions that you have to do something physically and the impact that will have on you. And swadhyaya, how you do something verbally, mantra, study of text, self-evaluation. Um, these are all verbal things and the intention that you bring behind why you're chanting these things or studying these things in a particular way for the the goal of self-knowledge. Or, I mean, Swadhyaya particularly is the Ishtadevata Sampriyogaha. And then for Ishwara Pranidhana, these are the intentions you have towards surrender. And, you know, whether you're theistic or non-theistic um, of this uh, this not being the sole agent of all of the outcomes of your life. This is a, a type of surrender. So all of those, all those kriyas and the, the um, determination of hatha, these really are intentions. And so if you do something physically, like a posture, yes, how you do it and the reason you're doing it is going to lead you in the direction of where you want to be going. Do you only want physical gains? Maybe it's gymnastics. Are you looking for uh, an inner experience of your body in a way that you haven't experienced it before for the sake of interoception and visceroception and proprioception, then yoga postures are going to help you with that. So in further I, earlier times, I'd spoken about sort of a grammar of the body that I thought there's only so much we can do with our body. So it only makes sense that different people around the world at different times are going to do very similar types of things like walking, for example or lying down to sleep. These are all common things. And we don't say, oh, this one group invented it because, you know, we see a, a, a likelihood that this is where it came from. You know, the walking was invented by the British or whatever. So within that grammar of the body, it's very likely that we're going to see crossover of postures. As well, there's this a very well-known thing of, of simultaneous arising of practices and knowledge, which occurs around the globe at different times in history, where different people on different parts of the world have come across the same thing at the same time. They've had a similar thought, a similar invention, whether it's a light bulb or physics or the telegraph. Uh, and many other examples who invented those things? Or maybe the time was ripe for them to be realized in that particular way that the collective consciousness was ready for those things to appear when they did. So this was another kind of argument against similarities in that seeing similarities in things is not an argument for origination or causation. It's just that things are similar. So that was one of my arguments uh, against that particular hypothesis and well as well one of the uh, references that Mark Singleton used was a book called Primitive Gymnastics by Niels Buch um, and I did a large comparison of these poses he saw several that he thought looked like similar postures to some of the standing poses that were done by Iyengar and Krishnamacharya um, of the you know 200 some odd plates were in that book in comparison with about the three or four hundred asanas that I compiled of uh, Patabi Joyce, Iyengar, Krishnamacharya, Shivananda, there was basically like a 1.5% overlap between them. It's statistically insignificant. Uh, it's as insignificant of, as the other physical things that we might do that you see correlates up, like walking or sleeping or eating food with your hands. It's, you know. So back to your, to your point, yes, intention behind why we do things is going to be a driver of outcomes. This is pretty well known. Well, my favorite line from that email about Mark Singleton was lack of textual proof of an asana does not equal proof of non-existence. It means you haven't found it yet, which I thought was just absolutely brilliant and hilarious. 
Well, I mean, and a lot of texts have been uncovered. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to sound like we're Mark Singleton bashing. I've never met him. Um, from what I hear, he's a very nice guy. Uh, and I understand that this was his PhD thesis, so he's not going to be very eager to have it undone. Uh, that's how he got his doctorate. So um, it, it's not that I, you know, want to tear down his edifice. It's just that I think that these things, it's fair to point these things out, especially as they become more commonly accepted into the mainstream media and then filter into the consciousness of yoga practitioners who then say, oh, well, yoga asanas were really not invented in India the way we know them now, but they were invented by the British and by Swedish gymnastics, so therefore we can do whatever we want. And this is actually a dialogue that I hear. I think that should be countered a little. Um, They're from uh, the... The SOAS school at Oxford, they're doing a lot of wonderful work. Jason Birch uh, and James Mallinson are, are unearthing, um, well, they're not unearthing, but they're translating texts which uh, have not had a lot of work done on them. And they're making those available to the public. And there's a lot of interesting things that they're doing. One of those texts is a text that uh, that was dated at Kaivalyadam um, and to the 14th or 15th century, but it was dated a little bit later by Jason Birch to around the 17th century. And this is a Hattabhyasa Padati, which lists 112 postures in it. So this is a very extensive text on asanas that show a variety of different movements. I've tried a lot of the asanas in, those, in that text, and some of them are quite difficult, and some of them are also. And um, this is an example of postures that were not seen yet at the time Singleton wrote his book, but have been seen now that show there was perhaps a much greater tradition of asanas than he was aware of. But in India, you guys already knew this. And a lot of the acharyas who I spoke to who were upset about Mark's book were like, yes, there's a deep, rich history of asanas. um, And those exist in a lot of texts that these guys haven't seen yet. And now as they're seeing them, they're saying, oh, yes, this stuff existed. Well, you already knew it existed. You just hadn't seen it. So I, I find some of the dialogue to be, um, you know, it, it's insincere to not accept the knowledge base and the testimony of the holders of the yoga tradition. I, you know, And I'm not accusing them of doing that. I'm just saying that's what seems to come across from some of the material that they were, are putting out on an academic level. And uh, I also understand that a lot of times the things that academics write are not meant for the lay public, but they're just meant for academics. Uh, they're not written in a user-friendly way. So, But when those things begin to filter into the lay public, a lot of time the messages, a lot of times the messages aren't communicated in a proper academic understanding type of a way. So what you end up with are either bullet points or headlines, which might summarize the teachings or the message of the writing in a way that is not intended by the author. Um, That's largely Mark Singleton's argument about his book. And so I agree, yes, if his intent was different, um, then he should make that very clear to the public because right now the message they've gotten is entirely different. Um, so, but it's kind of an old story now and, um, you know, it seems to resurface every once in a while, but the book's like, I don't know, almost 10 years old now. Uh, and hopefully a lot more interesting information will come out that will begin to shift the conversation in in a different way. Well, let's talk about a more interesting book. Uh, the one that you wrote, one simple thing. I don't know if it's more interesting, but it's definitely not about uh, the history of yoga. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for folks who have not read it, I think I've read it twice now. Um, Maybe you could talk a little bit about what the book is about. We know it's about yoga, but beyond that, and what uh, what drove you to write it? Okay. Well, thanks for asking, um, and thanks for reading it. Twice. uh, Yeah, thanks for reading it. The um, idea behind the book was basically to investigate the underlying neurophysiological and neurocognitive mechanisms that make yoga so effective. Basically, why does yoga work no matter what kind of yoga it is? Uh, I see, and a lot of people have felt that 
there's a certain amount of sectarianism that has been creeping into yoga as yoga has become branded. Iyengar yoga versus Ashtanga yoga, Ashtanga yoga versus Shivananda yoga, everybody against Bikram, you know. And, and it's just yoga seems to make people feel better. So we shouldn't be too sectarian about, we shouldn't be sectarian about these things at all. You have a preference, that's your preference, do it. But it seems that a lot of the effects that people are receiving from yoga are the same no matter what kind of yoga they do. So whether you do Shivananda, Yin yoga, Ashtanga yoga, Bikram yoga, Kundalini yoga, you're gonna feel most likely less stress, more centered, maybe more connected to meaning in your life, more focused, a little stronger, a little more flexible, maybe more able to manage your emotions, a bunch of things like that. There's 10 things in common that people seem to really always report as an effect or byproduct of practicing yoga. So I wondered, how does that happen? Why is that so? Uh, and also, why is it so that you can have people with a bunch of different needs all walk into the same yoga class? Maybe one has some little bit of back pain, another one is stressed out, another one is having problems sleeping, another one is looking for meaning in their lives, and another one is looking to get more flexible. And those five people go to a class together and they all walk out feeling a little bit better about the thing that they were trying to address. And I also wondered, well, how does that happen? I mean, shouldn't you need to go to a different yoga for each of those complaints? You don't really seem to need to all the time, sometimes, but not all the time. And I wanted to look at that too. So this led me into an investigation with the nervous system, um, primarily the autonomic nervous system, uh, the parasympathetic and sympathetic branches of the autonomic nervous system, the vagus nerve. and um, and the function of homeostasis, which is our body's ability to restore itself to balance. And when homeostasis is supported through things like postures and breathing and meditation, rest, chanting, change of diet perhaps, then homeostasis is supported. And then if there's a problem somewhere in the body, that part of us that knows how to restore balance and fix it does so automatically without us necessarily having to target it completely. We give it a little bit of external support and then our nervous system picks up the rest. So a lot of what we're doing in yoga is we are supporting our body's innate ability to restore itself to balance. And when we don't do that, then things go wrong. Given that this is HAF's podcast, I do have to ask you a little bit about yoga and Hinduism and how they are intertwined or perhaps not. So in your book, one of the lines in the introduction, uh, you go on to say, while some elements of yoga are deeply entwined in the Hindu traditions, others are not. Uh, and then you talk about how yoga has been extremely adaptable um, in, to time and place. Things that I would say Hindu philosophy has also been adaptable to time, place, circumstance, perhaps why it's lasted for as long as it has. So what I'm curious about is what are these other elements within yoga that you don't see entwined uh, within Hinduism or Sanatana Dharma, which I'm equating the two here. Okay. Well, um, I think that, you know, if you wanted to, you could make a case for whatever I say now is actually going to be a reflection of some of the characteristics of Sanatana Dharma. So uh, it's kind of like a, um, you know, no matter what, Sanatana Dharma is going to win this conversation. <laughs> and that's okay with me. Uh, and what my intention behind writing that, it might not have come across super clear in the book, but was that if certain parts of yoga practices have been teased out from a larger context. And those might be some of the physical things and some of, uh, some of the things associated with breathing practices. So if we are teaching breathing practices to downregulate sympathetic overdrive in school children or in um, prisons or in hospitals, we're not so concerned at that time with the larger philosophical project, which yoga is a philosophy, we're really only concerned at that time with getting a person's body to respond in such a way that they can begin to self-regulate themselves and be more effective in their own personal lives. And that's all. 
So, you know, you can say, well, this is going to be tied into Sanatana Dharma in this way, that way, the other way, and that's fine. But I don't think in those terms when I'm just trying to help someone feel better um, or have less stress. So that's really all that I meant by that. Uh, I really feel that yoga is a philosophy. That's why it's one of the Shat Darshanas. It is a philosophical undertaking, and it's about knowing who you truly are and what is the process towards understanding or achieving that or moving in that direction. This is, in a, in a nutshell, the, the yoga project, according to Patanjali. So that's how I follow yoga. For, for you know, someone who is in a traumatized population, that's not going to be their interest necessarily. They just want to have a good night's sleep. You know, maybe they just want to deal with um, uh, learning to manage their threat perception, and that's all they need at that time. And so, it, and so there are a lot of tools in yoga which are helpful for that. Um, and then there are other tools which I use that um, I've learned because of yoga, but I don't see in any of the yoga texts, which also are very effective, um, like resonance breathing and things like that. So there are a lot of things that I've come across by way of yoga, which have been helpful for helping other people. Continuing on this, uh, on this line, um, maybe you could speak a little bit more about one, one of the things that we've struggled with and at HAF is, I don't want to necessarily label it cultural misappropriation, but seeing people who don't identify as Hindu do very Hindu practices. For example, a Ganesh Puja, um, or practicing a lot of yoga, or, you know, a, a number of different things. So what we've kind of trying to be trying to understand is, why is it so difficult? Or why do people not choose to identify um, with Hinduism, when they are doing so many things that are, are clearly very Hindu in nature? Yeah, I think that when it comes to doing um, puja or chanting mantras, you definitely have to identify those as Hindu practices and um, and acknowledge that that is what you are doing when you do them, that you're doing Hindu practice. Um, there are a lot of people who do Vipassana meditation or other Buddhist practices who don't identify as being Buddhist but they identify with the practice they're doing as something that helps them to connect with themselves. Uh, I don't think the same is true necessarily with Islam or with Christianity. I don't think you have people going to church and um, taking communion who say, oh, you know, um, yeah, it just makes me feel good, so I'm going to eat this wafer and drink some wine, but I'm not really Christian. Maybe there are. I have no idea. Um, you know, maybe there are people who like going to synagogue who don't identify with being Jewish because they like the atmosphere and it makes them makes them feel better. There are probably people like that around the world who, who do both of those things. I, you know, if the question to me is, do I think yoga is a Hindu practice? And the answer is yes, I do. Do I think people can do yoga without identifying as being a Hindu? Then I think, yes, they definitely can because we see that in millions of people around the world. Do I think that people should understand uh, and value and recognize what the roots of yoga are as coming from within the Hindu tradition? I definitely, absolutely, I think they should. It's good to know where things have come from. All right. Well, last question I have, because I've taken a lot of your time, is I don't know if you had an opportunity to read the New York Times the other week, but they actually had a really awesome article about lifting weights. Um, and so I know we talked earlier about the intention behind a practice and how that can really define a practice and how that can define yoga. But I want to talk a little bit more about that in terms of the difference between a yoga practice and another sport that someone is so similarly dedicated to, um, like running, for example, because runners also talk about a kind of Zen and internal calmness that they get when they're hitting the pavement. So this, um, this article, I was reading it, and it, it actually sounded very much like my own journey through 
Ashtanga. I just want to read you a couple of couple of lines from here. Um, he starts off by saying, I quote, lifting weights becomes a transformative practice to be undertaken primarily for its own sake, the byproduct of which is a nourishing effect on the soul. It's just you and the bar. You either make the lift or you don't. If you make it, great. If not, you train more and try again. Some days it goes well. Other days it doesn't. But over time, it becomes clear that what you get out of yourself is proportionate to the effort you put in. It's as simple and as hard as that. Then he goes on to say, this doesn't mean that progress happens fast or is always linear. Consistency and patience are key. If you try to rush the process or force heroic efforts, you invariably wind up getting hurt. Weightlifting, like so much in life, demands showing up day in and day out, taking small and incremental steps that compound over time and lead to big gains. There will be plateaus. Weightlifting teaches you to embrace them or at the very least accept them. This is an important outcome with consequences extending far beyond the gym. And he goes on to a whole bunch of other things, but it just sounds like he's talking about yoga, dedication, consistency, practice, 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 patience, not forcing things. And, you know, most importantly, the lessons that he's learning at the gym, translating to his life outside of the gym. So how do you distinguish when someone is finding something so great from this physical activity that they're doing that's clearly helping him mentally, physically, and in his perspectives, you know, on a spiritual level, something like that versus yoga, which is doing the same thing? Well, what he's describing basically could be anything. This could be any discipline that someone is really uh, enamored with. It could be swimming, it could be running, it could be weightlifting, it could be cooking, it could be studying, it could be playing the piano. Uh, all of those things about dedication and discipline and immersing yourself in the thing that you're doing, these are common in all disciplines. So the thing that is going to be distinct about yoga is that yoga defines itself, especially if we look at Patanjali's yoga. And not everyone agrees that Patanjali's yoga is the authoritative one. Uh, Others argue against that by saying anytime after Patanjali, as long as you're word, using the word yoga, you're basically referring to the Shat Darshan in one way or the other. Um, I fall into that camp. So Patanjali said that yoga is Chitta Vritti Nirodaha. It is doing something, either eliminating or um, controlling or working somehow with the Vrittis or the activities in the field of your mind stilling of them or the eliminating of them or the ability to choose one activity in the field of your mind and only be immersed in that one activity, perhaps a mantra or the breath or the idea of um, Nirodha itself. So after he says yoga is Chitta Vritti Nirodha, that's his definition in his equation, he says, avastanam. Then the self dwells within itself as its own self. Okay. That's the result. So. If the self is not dwelling as its own being, within its own being, then vritti sarupyam itaratra. Otherwise, it's going to take the conformity or the shape of the different activities in the field of the mind, which are our thoughts, our memories, our feelings, sensations, and incoming information and images. And then you're in the world of, of change, in the world of becoming. So either you exist in pure being, which is the self, or you exist in the world of becoming. And yoga teaches us to distinguish between those two worlds, prakriti or nature, which is change, and purusha, which is pure witness. And the end of the, the story in yoga is basic, basically that you dwell and exist as purusha, separate from the change of prakriti, see the distinction between those two, and that's kaivalya. So that's what yoga is. And you might use postures as an accessory, but only a beginning accessory to prepare yourself to strengthen the mind and make the mind subtle enough to begin to have the discernment between that which changes and that which doesn't. And so that's why we use postures. That's why we use breathing to prepare us to move toward these subtle layers, layers of discernment. This is how yoga is going to distinguish itself from other practices. Now, there are going to be other types of modalities where that same type of a thing happens. And yoga is describing all of those things where that can occur. So it becomes this overreaching um, umbrella term for 
What are the activities that you can do that will give you chitta vritti nirodha? What are the activities that you can do that will lead you to tadadrashtahu surupe avasthanam? So that you have the final discernment or the viveka kyati between that which changes and that which doesn't. And there might be a whole variety of things which allow you to do that. Well, I probably have tons and tons of questions for you, but since I've taken over an hour of your time, I will stop here. Thank you so much for joining us and imparting your knowledge. Welcome. Well, that's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, please email sohindu at hafsite.org. Hindu.